Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. In 16th century Rome, six individuals stepped forward to comment on the socio-political issues of the day. Back when speaking out against the rich and powerful could be met with violence or even death. Still, the consequences didn't stop them. They refused to stay quiet and, in doing so, cemented their place in history as champions of free speech. The first was Pasquino, a tailor so talented he managed to work his way into the Vatican. Nobody there paid much attention to a tailor, and so they didn't think twice when discussing sensitive topics around him. Pasquino would eavesdrop and collect valuable bits of gossip, which would then be spread to his friends and family. Then there was Marforio, who spent much of his time in the water lazing about. He would often carry with him funny poems and satires written by others, showing them to all who passed by, and those pieces were almost always directed toward powerful government figures, which I'm sure made a lot of people very uncomfortable. Then there was Abbot Luigi, who actually worked in government despite his disdain for it. He spent most of his time at the Palazzo Vidoni Caffarelli, a massive palace designed by a student of the great artist Raphael. He openly admonished his peers and superiors whenever possible. Madame Lucrezia was the only woman among the bunch. She had suffered some terrible accidents during her life, which affected her face. Still, she didn't let it stop her from spreading her biting critique at those at the top. Next, there was Il Babuino, although that wasn't his real name. He was called that, the Italian phrase for the baboon, due to his unfortunate looks and deformities. Maybe it was because he felt like half a man that he grew so angry at his country's leaders. And finally, there was Il Facciano. He was a humble water salesman during a time when the Roman aqueducts were in desperate need of repair. He, like the other five people of his time, was not afraid to voice his opinions, and he suffered greatly for it. People in town sometimes threw stones at him, which badly damaged his face. These six figures were rebels at a time when rebellion, especially against the church, was a dangerous endeavor. They were known as the Congregation of Wits, and modern rebels can pay tribute to them today. They were the original kings and queen of Roman gossip, and they still hang around all over the city. That's because they're statues. Known as the talking statues of Rome, they hadn't been created with satire in mind. Pasquino was actually a representation of Menelaus, the mythical king of Sparta who married Helen of Troy. Marforio loved the water because he was a sculpture of a river god, thought to be either Jupiter or Neptune. And Madame Lucrezia's face wasn't always deformed. Back in her heyday, she was thought to have been a statue of the Egyptian goddess Isis. The toga-clad Abbot Luigi was the statue of a magistrate conveying ill will toward the Pope, which didn't sit well with Vatican leaders. Il Babuino was a mythical half-goat, half-man creature, and Il Facino depicted a more modern 16th century man. Like I said, these statues weren't satirical creations in and of themselves. Instead, Romans imposed that on them. They would write on these statues, or stick little poems and critiques of authority to them in the middle of the night, If they were ever caught, they could face jail, 
or have their offending hand cut off. Heck, if the graffiti was bad enough, execution was even an option. Despite the punishments, though, people continued to put up their writings for generations. And as those in power got tired of seeing them, the statues were either vandalized or moved elsewhere. Mexican painter Diego Rivera once said, The role of the artist is that of the soldier in the revolution. And while the original artists behind these statues might not have been revolutionaries, those in the lower class who used them certainly were. Back then, though, the authorities hadn't yet learned the most important rule on the internet today. Never read the comments. In an 1897 response to Virginia O'Hanlon, a New York Sun editor named Francis Church stated without a doubt that, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Fans of classic Christmas films know those words all too well. However, it was another line in Virginia's original letter that encapsulated the public's belief in the media. If you see it in the sun, it is so. You see, before cable news and AM radio turned everyone into skeptics, people had faith in what they read and listened to. If it came from the mouth or pen of a trusted journalist, it must have been true. And then, in 1938, all hell broke loose. On October 30th, the day before Halloween, a radio broadcast went out all across America. When it did, it caused a panic from coast to coast and everywhere in between. The first bulletins came in from an observatory in Chicago where it was reported that explosions had been spotted on the surface of Mars. Minutes later, an earthquake was felt 20 miles outside of Princeton, New Jersey. Originally thought to be a meteorite, a later update revealed another impact not far from Trenton. It was clear that New Jersey was under attack. Onlookers and police watched as the top of the unidentified object came off. Something emerged from inside its wide, black eyes reflecting back at the crowd. A hum could be heard getting louder and louder as the creature extended its long, snake-like tentacles. Suddenly, a fire engulfed the officers approaching the craft. More explosions followed, then reports of the dead started coming in. Forty people had been found burned to the bone in a nearby field. The United States military had been dispatched to several counties in New Jersey as martial law was declared throughout the state. One hour later, the broadcaster came back to announce what you most likely already know, that everyone had been listening to a dramatization of the classic H.G. Wells sci-fi story, The War of the Worlds, presented by Orson Welles. The aftermath of the broadcast is widely known, and still debated today. Despite the sensationalist headlines from newspapers like the New York Times, it's unclear just how much of the country truly panicked during the program but it was enough to force the police to actually visit the station to shut things down. Page boys and CBS employees had to hold them back as Wells continued to push the envelope. Meanwhile, CBS's switchboard was overrun with calls from Midwestern towns where riots had broken out. Mobs had flooded the streets. In the town of Concrete, Washington, the phone lines were so overloaded that they shorted out, causing a town-wide blackout that probably didn't help to calm their fears. The story of Wells' presentation isn't that unknown. It's a cautionary tale meant to symbolize that we need to vet information instead of taking it at face value. However, America's response to the War of the Worlds was only the tip of the iceberg, because the broadcast was recreated six years later in Chile, 
It had been rewritten to fit the new setting, of course, but all the telltale signs were still there. Reports of explosions, death, and mass hysteria. Except unlike in America, where many folks suspected they were listening to a work of fiction, Chileans had no idea. The governor really thought aliens had invaded. He was so scared he organized the Chilean military to fight them off. Then in 1949, the show was changed again for an Ecuadorian audience. The only difference in this case was that the riots didn't start until after the broadcast was over. Upon learning that the whole thing had been a hoax, locals burned down both the radio station and the newspaper building. 20 people lost their lives that day, and over $350,000 in damage was reported. Among those arrested for the crimes were three of the broadcasters themselves, who had caused the panic in the first place. Today, as so much of the news that's reported has shifted toward entertainment, it's more and more difficult to spot the fiction amongst the fact. Conspiracy theorists want us to believe that everything is a massive plot or cover-up run by the world's elite. The rest of us are left searching through it all for the truth, like searching for needles in a haystack. I know we often lament that our world just isn't what it used to be, but some things haven't changed. After all, that old bit of advice is still as relevant as it's ever been. Don't believe everything you hear. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.